So, you know, the Freedom Library as a, as a project is about thinking about how we make people in prison visible. How do we create something that is a, a, a symbolic and a, and a real contrast to anything that you come up with when you hear the word prison? You know, you think mm-hmm. about bars, you think about cages, you think about time. We want to create something that has you thinking about hope and not desperation, that has people inside having a real access to hope, to possibility. And, um, and to be able to do that and expose people to some of the best literature being produced in this world in this given moment is a kind of amazing thing. Episode 79 with author and activist Reginald Dwayne Betts. Welcome to the Institute of Black Imagination. I'm your host, Dario Calmis, an artist, writer, brand consultant, and generally curious fellow. And each week we bring you a conversation from the pool of Black genius to inspire, engage, and help you unleash your own imagination. Welcome, dear listeners, to a profound journey through time, transformation, and the extraordinary power of poetry. Today, we are diving into the captivating life story of Reginald Dwayne Betts, a man whose path took unexpected turns, leading him to discover the boundless potential within himself. In this conversation with Dwayne, we'll unravel the intricate threads of his life's tapestry. From a life-changing moment involving an armed carjacking at the age of 16, to nine years of incarceration, part of which was spent in solitary confinement, Dwayne's experiences would fundamentally reshape his perception of time, communication, and the pursuit of knowledge. And then, a pivotal moment within the confines of a solitary cell, A copy of Dudley Randall's The Black Poets found its way underneath his door. A book that transcended the physical boundaries of incarceration and transported Duane into a world of poetry, a portal to the richness of Black life and culture, and a testament to the intelligence couched within the archive. But Duane's story doesn't stop there. Why? It's actually just beginning. As we journey through Duane's life, we'll explore the profound impact of literature on his transformation, including his decision to attend Yale Law School, his encounters with influential poets like Sonia Sanchez, and his founding of Freedom Reads, an organization inserting the power of the archive into prisons around the country. His Guggenheim Fellowship and MacArthur Genius Award are a testament to an artist for, above all things, Dwayne is an artist, in full command of their powers. So, dear listeners, join us as we delve deep into the heart of his story, a story of redemption, reflection, and the enduring strength of the human spirit. Be sure to share some of your thoughts on today's episode with us over on Twitter and Instagram at Black Imagination. This and more content is also over on IBI Digital at BlackImagination.com. And if you'd like to support this work, be sure to click the support link in the show notes. And now, Dwayne Betts on the Institute of Black Imagination. Let the journey begin. Dwayne Betts. Welcome to the Institute of Black Imagination. Um, for those for those of you all listening, I just had to press record because Dwayne and I 
just started catching up and he already started going in. So I figured let's just start here. Dwayne, welcome to the Institute of Black Imagination, man. I am so excited for this conversation and so glad to have you. You know, um, nah, man, Dario, it's a pleasure to be here. And and it's interesting because I, I think about, um, you know, the space that I'm sitting in and, and I'm at the Freedom Reads headquarters and it's at 2666 State Street. And like, but the, the part of it I'm in, it's an extension, 10,000 square feet that we just leased um, because we realized that we needed more space to, to do this thing, you know? And, and the thing that we do is build libraries in prison and they're handmade and they're made out of walnut or cherry or maple. And it's especially curated collection. Um, but really we build the Freedom Library and we place those on prison housing units. And the notion of a library is not just the physical space, the physical intervention that we do, to the space of prison, which could be like, you know, a space where dignity disappears. Um, but we also create this imaginative space and that animates the, the sort of larger struggle that we're engaged in, which is one for for freedom, for dignity, but also for safety and, and for and for and for visibility. And so I'm in this space and and, and I was in my um conference room for the first time. And, you know, we got this 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 table made out of reclaimed wood. And we wanted it because it's a metaphor for our organization. You know, the, the wood was from some tree that got felled by lightning and it would have been um, discarded, trashed, but it was, it was um, saved and it was turned into something beautiful. And it's a poplar tree. And I remember when I went in and I looked at it, man, and it is so beautiful. And I looked at it and it was like, I'm pretty certain that most lynchings in the United States happen from the lens of poplar trees. And for this to be a place that I'm gonna go at to start my imaginative work on such a regular basis, for this to be the center of, of a space that I dreamed and that we brought into existence is I think a powerful testament to the imagination, but I also think it's a powerful testament to how the imagination can turn horror into, into possibility, and, you know, can turn horror into, into a reminder. Man, that is... So powerful. I mean, actually, um, in Strange Fruit, she brings up poplar trees, um, right? So you are you are right on point. Um, to get started, who would you like to dedicate today's conversation to? You know, I've been I've I've had a lot of. Um, conversations I've been interviewed a, a few times and nobody has ever asked me that and, and I think it's a good question because um, to both say something about who your audience is but I think it also says something about who you publicly say you care about in a particular moment and I'm going to dedicate this one to um, to my mom mm. you know I'm dedicated to two people I'm dedicated to my mom and I'm dedicated to this guy that works for me named Steve who Steven who reminded me of something this morning he said um you know, I got locked up when I was 17, and a lot of my family looks at me like that 17-year-old. That but he did, you know, like three three decades in prison. And um, and my mom had once said something to me recently about, uh, she asked me to write a poem about a mother that's lost in time. And I think both of them were sharing the same sentiment. This idea that what incarceration does is it, is it, is it, is it tries to cement you into a moment of time, and you spend a good chunk of your life you know, trying to assert that you are here and that you were you were here then, 
Um, but it's so hard because, you know, like like for Steven and for me, when you get locked up as a child, like a lot of people just remember you as that child. It takes an acclimation period before they can begin to see you um, and see the parts of you that they haven't been able to see in 30 years or 10 years or 15 years. And, um, and my mom is feeling the same way, you know, but it's even worse because she's like, you home and you're still not home. You know, um, I had to give my mm. son to the world. Um, I, I, she didn't say that shit. That shit sounds too biblical. <laughs> 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 but she was like, you know, she was like, my son ran to the world. Maybe that's 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 what she would say. You know, like I needed to, to be out there. Um, so. And what's your mom's name? Uh, Gloria. Gloria. So Gloria and Stephen, this one is for you. Um, whew, I mean, this this is going to be good. Uh, so we will we will circle back to you know your time in incarceration for sure. But like, let's speaking of time, let's speed all the way up to like right now to twenty twenty three. What is exciting you the most right now? I mean, you mentioned earlier, you know, this extension of the 10,000 square feet for Freedom Reads, which we can speak about a bit later as well. But like, what is like top of mind? Like what it has your engines popping off right now? Um, that's a really good question. Um, you know, we got this new space and, and we're going to do a grand opening. And so that's top of mind. And, and, and the reason is that, you know, the new space and having it, it, it it's like our our introduction, our reintroduction to the world. Mm-hmm. And um, and we're thinking about all of these things that we're going to pair it with because we, we do work all across the country. Uh, we talk about the imagination. We talk about the black imagination. I'm thinking about like Kiese Lemon, who's, who's one of our literary ambassadors. Um, I'm thinking about Tracy Thomas, who's um, podcast host of The Stacks. Um, but I'm thinking about Jackie Woodson and Mitchell Jackson, um, Jason Reynolds. I'm thinking about people who have been associated with us as an organization. And, 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 and how do we try to, as an organization, capture the lightning that is a kind of renaissance in mm. American letters? Um, so, 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 you know, the Freedom Library as a, as a project is about thinking about how we make people in prison visible. How do we create something that is a, a, a symbolic and a, and a real contrast to anything that you come up with when you hear the word prison? You know, you think mm-hmm. about bars, you think about cages, you think about time. We want to create something that has you thinking about hope and not desperation, that has people inside having a real access to hope, to possibility. And um, and to be able to do that and expose people to some of the best literature being produced in this world in this given moment is a kind of amazing thing. So that's top of mind because this, this, uh, this is an opportunity to um, reintroduce this really powerful work to the world. And, and where before, when they first heard of it, it was like, is that even possible? And now it's like, oh, wait, you guys have done 200 libraries? Y'all on pace to actually make this happen? Y'all got video footage? Y'all have been in places where no cameras have gone? So, um, so yeah, I'm, I'm really excited about what's, what's to come. You know, that's a that's a really, first of all, Congratulations, man. Like, congratulations. Like, 200 libraries is incredible, especially in, like, the face of impossibility. Um, And what excites me the most about this conversation is this idea of literature or the book 
um, as an access point, right? As a as a, a keyhole to peep through to see other possibilities. Um, but you said something earlier, um, actually just now, about people thought that it was impossible uh, until they saw evidence. And there's a little bit of uh, a play there, right? In thinking about law and legality. You work, you know, now as a lawyer, um, you're also a poet, you are an, really an artist. Um, but what does it mean to, what role does like evidence play in one's becoming or one's access to themselves? Um, that's, you know, that's a, what role does, say it again, what role does, what? Evidence. Evidence, yeah, there's just this interesting thing that I read once about, like, the weird thing about the, the literal, like, rules of evidence is that the rules of evidence govern um, what kind of information can be considered evidence. Because mm. evidence isn't necessarily, like, um, it isn't necessarily a fact. It could just be some information that could lead you to believe one thing or another. And in mm. the criminal trial, so like evidence that um, evidence that you robbed a bank in the past um, might be useful information, but whether or not it's permissible for a jury to hear depends on what reason you want the jury to hear it. Turns out that it's not permissible to be used as, a, as prior bad acts as evidence that you are more likely to have committed this crime. That's not reason. But if you get on stand and you're testifying on your own behalf and say you tell a lie, um, your prior bad act could be used to show that you're not a trustworthy person. And that's why a lot of times in criminal trials, the, the person that's the criminal defendant, they don't have to, they don't have to um, incriminate themselves. And this is why a lot of times on a criminal trial, the person that's a criminal defendant won't take the stand because by, by taking the stand, they open up the jury to hear about any kind of past acts that they did. And why do I mention this? There's no more evidence about what's possible or whatever. Well, evidence always depends on when you start the clock. So if a, if a court says that we won't permit evidence of like prior bad acts, that's supposed to be for fairness sake. But sometimes the evidence that we include um, is just, is unjust. Or the evidence that we don't include is, is unjust, at least for injustice. So for, for at the very beginning of Freedom Reads, I'm like, yo, I want to do this. I want to make this happen. Um, the only evidence that folks had to go on was like, what are the possibilities of people in prison? It's never been like a, a wooden, what do you mean by, I'm going to make a, you're going to make a library and it's really just a combination of bookcases and books. That's not what a library is. And I'm like, what do you mean that's not what a library is? It's a whole tradition of little libraries all across this country and all across the world where people, because a library is an idea. A library is not a building. A library is not a space, right? A library is an idea that you can have a cultural, intellectual um, center that becomes the vibrant heartbeat of a community. And so, so the evidence of the existence of that idea, of it being possible, at first, people would tell me it wasn't possible because they hadn't seen it before. And I was like, well, what if you stretch back what you include as evidence? And what if you include that day in 1996 when I got the book slid under my cell? If you take that as evidence, then you recognize that this is not just, just possible, but it's something that people hunger for. Mm. Brother, you... <laughs> bars on bars, right? And I think 
you know, I love that idea of like evidence is about when you start the clock. Um, and so much of even like us being in this conversation with this podcast is about, is also about evidence, right? Like that you exist, that, you know, we all exist. And what does it look like to show evidence of Black imagination um, at work? But let's, 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 let's go a little bit back in time. Um, so, you grew up in Maryland, um, and something, you know, you were in school, reading, doing great, and then something happened around the age of 16. What, could you, could you paint that picture for us? I had a friend, a friend, try to carjack somebody and get murdered, and so all this stuff was in my head, you know, and it was supposed to be cautionary tales. When this happened, I remember reading Nathan McCall makes me want to holler in the 11th grade, you know, um, or probably ninth grade when I read makes me want to holler. But it's all setting up an understanding of the world. I think that's supposed to be all a series of, of these moments that I, I recognized what was possible when I steered clear of it. Um, except I didn't. You know, I recognized what was possible. I was thinking about what might happen. I didn't want to go to prison. Um, but I carjacked somebody and I was with some friends and we got caught the next day. And it was one of those moments in my life where, you know, I was probably on a boat before that, lost at the ocean. And 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 it was some oars, but I wasn't willing to pick them up and make a decision, you know. And um, and I end up in prison before all of my peers, before all of my friends. I'm 16 and I'm not supposed to survive. And um, and I ended up making a decision at that point. Mm. And you know, there's there's some there's something even in this conversation we speak so much about time. Um, time has come up a lot. You were you ended up being incarcerated for for nine years. Um, part of that you spent in solitary confinement, right? As a as a as a teenager, um, how? did your experience and your time there shift your relationship to time? You spoke earlier about, you know, mothers trying to reconcile, you know, maybe two sons that they had, right? Because they lost a big chunk of them um, or even being stuck in time. But as, as, as an experience, as a lived experience, how did that shift your relationship to time? Um, that's a really good question. Um, but it also is a part about what it means to be a writer, you know, because as a writer, um, you know, my relationship with time is both um, about the relationship part of it, but it's also about how I think about manipulating it and how I think about trying to find ways to, um, how I find ways to really do some some juxtaposition of, um, of one moment in time with another moment in time. Mm -hmm. And I think prison, mm. for me, probably was what, I mean, it, it rearranged everything I, I understood about time. You know, because I went in, I, I actually stole dude's cell phone. It was one of the things, or at some point I stole somebody's cell phone around that time. And so it was like at the cusp when cell phones were first being introduced, you know. And actually I remember like one of the cars I had had at some point, it had like a, a car phone in it. So I was really at the cusp, you know. I was like experiencing a car phone just as it was fading out. And, and then I was experiencing a cell phone and again, I'm talking about I probably had a cell phone for three days. You know what I mean? 
Um, and then I got rid. I probably had no. Actually, I think that the the dude I carjacked probably had a cell phone. Now, my my criminal history lasted. My serious criminal history probably lasted a week. You know what I mean? And so I had a cell phone for like a day and a half within that week. And and so I, I go to prison. And also the internet had just started. You know, I remember my first internet search being, um, you know, speed reading. Yeah, you know, how to speed read. That was my first search. So so I'm this kid, and 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 and, and with tech. The reason why I like that internet search story is because it reminds me of like what I cared about when nobody was watching. Because mm-hmm. uh, you end up in prison, and 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 if if you're not running away from the truth, you know that you committed a crime that landed you there, and, and you're trying to really feel figure out if you have like real value in, in the world, if if you really are who you said you were. And so, in trying to mm. figure that out, um, you're trying to find moments in your life that that affirm that you are who you said you were, and that's one of those moments for me. You know, like. I know what my internet search was, um, and I know that I, I went into prison and 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 I lost access to the internet as it was budding. I lost access to phones, um, but I also lost access. I, I was I was thrust into a world in which the way you communicated with people was not on the instantaneous cycle. It wasn't even a matter of like driving to somebody's house or calling them and hoping they're home, and then if they're not home, calling them at night when you expect them to be home. It was literally maybe they'll come see you on a weekend. If they can't afford your phone calls, then then you're not measuring your relationship with them based on phone calls. You you measuring it based on on weekly phone calls or monthly phone calls, or you measuring it based on letters. And even a time frame for letters is like, okay, it's going to take me three days to write this, and it's going to take two days to get to you. And then, so I mean, it, it's wild, man. It's wild because um, you know, maybe it teaches you patience, it forces you to learn some kind of patience, but I think it also um, forces you to develop a different kind of rhythm of, of living. And that rhythm is very, very different from what exists in the world. And, um, and so you come home and you spend a lot of time trying to calibrate the way in which you learn to get by by the way in which you got to get by out here. Mm. Um, you know, and and then there was something kind of magical happened. Um, and I'm going to f- show you something. Can you read this? Yeah, 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 yeah. It's kind of blurry, but yeah, the Black Poets. That's my <laughs> We actually have a copy here uh, at the IBI archive. So what I just flashed for Dwayne uh, was a copy of the Black Poets, um, which is an, an anthology of poetry uh, collected by Dudley Randall. Um, but this was something that was slid under your door mm-hmm. in solitary confinement. What... Where were you, like, kind of what was that mental space while being in solitary and then opening this? You know, the the thing about the Black Poets is it's one of these, um, it's a mass market book. You know, it's not um, it's not like a traditional paperback. The, the binding is, is a little bit small. Um, it's super thick. It's like more than 300 pages, so it won't fit in your pocket. But it's it's more portable and it's it's designed to be that way. As if it's designed to to really get to the people. You know, it feels audacious in that way. Like yo, it's a lot of people that's gonna want to read this. Uh, it could have easily been, you know, like one of these. Like it could have been like one of these hardback fifty dollar books. But it's like no, I'm gonna put this in your hand for seven dollars. I mean, I think that's really powerful. And I think it's powerful that it's still in print. These are things I think retrospectively. But also, I, I found, um, you know, I, so when it came to me. I wasn't a poet, and I hadn't really been into poetry, and so um, I wondered why I was there. 
you know, I hadn't really read poems before, and I thought, man, and it is. And 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 I was reading a lot. You know, I mean, I said, you know, speed reading was my first, you know, search, dial-up search, high-speed internet mm-hmm. search. Um, but I started reading it, and I found out and realized how poets capture a world. Uh, you know, County Cullen, what a marvelous thing to make a poet black and bid him sing. Um, Claude McKay, um, If We Must Die, you know, um, but also also Amiri Baraka and, and Sonia Sanchez and Lucille Clifton and Langston Hughes and Robert Hayden. And then and then poets like 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 this this poets who um Shirley Williams, you know, poets who are like might now be termed something like minor poets, but who 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 had a huge influence on the stuff that I was writing. And I I was um and I was on a I did an event with Sonia Sanchez and Sonia Sanchez, sister Sonia's 89 years old, man. And I, I remember getting that book and reading her poems, um, and 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 and, and, and black poets, and then ordering, um, homegirls and hand grenades. And I, I took it to um, the next prison I went to. I was at Southampton Correction Center in solitary confinement and beginning six months in a hole. And I was told I was being sent to a super maximum security prison. And I, and I took two books with me to that prison. Um, Sonia Sanchez's homegirls and hand grenades, and um. And, uh, and, and Sun Tzu's The Art of War. And one of those books helped me survive prison. And mm. one of them I never fully finished reading. And, uh, and one that helped me survive was Sonia Sanchez's Homegirls and Hand Grenades. And, and that came out of the Black Poets. And I remember sitting beside her thinking about those times, man, and, and recounting a story I had just told somebody else about being in my office and, and having this little small folder that had all of these poems I wrote during that time period where I was taking a sheet of um, paper and folded it in half so that it would become a folio, like four pages. And I was and I was writing the poems on it. And, um, and I remember telling her that, telling her that like, you know, the thing is that in that cell, I didn't know if poets made money. Um, I didn't know if poetry was a job. I just knew that it was a, it was a portal to black life. Like, mm. like it was a portal to the world. And I, and I say it was a portal to black life because it was the black poets that introduced me to poetry. You know, it was reading Nikki Giovanni. They would not understand that black love is black wealth. Um, so, so yeah, that that book actually transformed, you know, transformed my life in some some really um, interesting and, and, and radical ways and some unexpected unexpected ways too. And I want to I want to you know kind of pull this conversation um, to some of your your current projects, but there's one thing that I think is also kind of powerful. Um, you you changed your name while you were in prison. Um, you went by Shahid, which means to witness. And for you, why why did you choose Shahid, and then? Underneath that, what is, what does the power of changing your name allow for? It's interesting because we say change a name, and I might just say, you know, part of the process that we embarked on, that I was embarked on, is, 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 is like, you know, it's like um, maybe, it's like it was a different spelling of my name. You know what I mean? Mm. Um, and. 
And I don't know, man. It's also it, it was all about you know coming into this space where people recognize. Like so, it's 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 this it's, it's, it's cut warring ideas in my head, right? And this is why it's a real tension. And it's always been a tension. I go into prison and I'm hanging around Muslims and five percenters and cats in the nation of Islam. And what they seem to have is knowledge. And it seems really powerful. It seems esoteric, you know. And we 16 and 17 and we children who have to be grown because because we're in prison, you know. And like. Um, you don't have permission to need to be taken care of anymore. And, and watching dudes who just was trying to carry themselves with like a, 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 a amount of discipline that was outsized for how old they were, it was mm. just uh, drew me. Um, but I didn't really want to be a dude that became a Muslim to survive prison or anything like that. Um, but I, I just like this idea though, man, of like you being becoming somebody else. Like it just so, uh, so I was like, I want a name. You know, um, and, and I had my father's name. And I think I had some tension in that. Like, yo, did my father's name land me in prison? Um, and, and my family called me by my middle name as if not to announce my father's name. And so I think I was carrying some of that around with me. And um, and I chose Shahid, and, and it happened to me in a witness. And it fit. It was like, I want to be a poet. I want to be a writer. And, and it allowed me to think about the, the value of being seen. Um, you know, uh, and I've been in prisons lately and been around kids lately. Like, you wanted to be a witness? You wanted to be a snitch? And I was like, dude, what are you talking about? Like, when I was your age, I was walking y'all with somebody who had life. I was walking y'all, people had 50 and 60 years. And when I got out and I went to law school, I went back and got them out of prison because I was a witness to their suffering. Like, don't, don't tell me that my name means I want to testify in court. You know how much time I did in prison? How many people's names I, I would have never said? Um, and, and you know, and and, it's, and and also how I lived in prison with people who who grapple with things that they've done and grapple with what it means to have been complicit in the harm of other folks and not know how to get past that. And I was telling mm. to this, kid, I was telling that to this kid, and the kid was like, "Okay," you know. And um, and so that's where the name came from. And when I chose that name, I didn't know that that was what it was going to mean. It was going to be the thing that tied me to prison. But it turns out that part of that selection process, part of who I wanted to be when I said that I want to be called Shahid, is what has tied me to, to prison going forward. And you might say, well, why do you publish under Reginald Dwayne Betts now? It's because, again, I think of it as like, even then, it was Sonia Sanchez, no, um, um, Lucille Clifton had a poem, and it was a line in the poem. It's called Lucille, and it's about um, a grandmother. And it says, um, it says her name, and it says, um, mine has always been an African name. Um, which is which is like this really interesting thing, you know, who is it, what does it mean when we let other people tell us who we are and what parts of us matter? You know, like who gets to say that like like that like that like chitlins is 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 dirty, you know what I mean? It's like, nah, you don't get to tell me that, brother. You you get to tell yourself how you want to pray and how you want to worship. And I think I get to choose for myself. Um and so it's really interesting. Um and I was always struggling with that. And now I've 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 concluded that I am shy, you know, like I am Shahid. It's Shahid that goes back into the prisons. It's, um, it's Shahid that's driven to do this work. Um, but I am also Reginald Dwayne Betts. You know what I'm saying? I am also my mother's child. I am my father's child. And and um, and the tragic thing about America is that it's really easy in one generation to be um, the hope of your family, the promise of your family. Mm. I mean, that's something that's really devastating. You know what I mean? You, you want to imagine that we live in a world in which... Um, it wouldn't be so many people who are trying to accomplish first in their families, whether it's like, you know, first to stay out of prison, first to graduate from college. And it's kind of rough to think about what it is, the narratives that we carry around with us. But I think remembering those narratives help us get past them. So, Yeah, you know, and I think what's what's 
been even more fascinating in, you know, just, you know, one, getting to know you, and then two, kind of looking at this history and this story, is I think I didn't quite understand the way in which the prison industrial complex um, and the label of felon like sticks to you, right? Like it sticks to you, like it, it hangs on to you like a weight. Um, so for those of you listening, I mean, we mentioned it in the intro, but you know, Mr. Reginald Dwayne Betts is out here in these streets killing the game, right? Like completely, you know, recaptured his own essence, like got out of prison, MFA poetry, went to Yale Law School, became a lawyer, started reaching back and started, you know, um, working on cases on behalf of his brothers. But like once you once you're out, right, and you're looking for this job, you know, you met your wife at the record store, you're out, you're free. Like in what ways did this past, this experience make make it a little tricky even even when you had evidence right when you had mounds of evidence not only educational but like also like programmatically poetry right like this 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 check mark when you go in for a job application you know have you been to prison right are you a felon yeah it's funny that first um my first job you know the first one i got post incarceration um the question was um have you been convicted of a felony in the past seven years? So I was like, great. You know what I mean? I was like, sweet, man. I could be like, no, and I'm not even lying, you know? And I say no, because I've been locked up for like eight and a half years at that point. And, um, and it was cool. I was able to say no. And, um, and I was able to, um, you know, do the interview. I mean, I was able to do the interview and get the job. And even though I had to make up a lot of stuff, because even though I was, um, even though I was able to say no, um, it still was like, well, let me look at your resume. And my resume didn't have work experience. And I, you know, I couldn't list the prison um, cafeteria, you know, as, as my last job. I couldn't list the law library. And so even though I was able to say, you know, no, I'm not, you know, I hadn't been convicted of a felony in the past seven years, it was still even a challenge at that point. And it's been persistently a challenge. And I think the real lesson in my life has been like, what does it mean to embrace it? What does it mean to be like, you know, I am ashamed of what I've done, but it's a difference between like, um, like shame and shame, you know? Um. Yeah, you know, and kind of kind of around this and, and thinking about space, right? Because you're you're also, you know, you're in a new space, right? Um, which is is exciting. But you said um in an article uh that while you were there, you were writing every day, reading every day, imagining that words would give me the freedom to understand what got me in prison because when you're trapped in a cell literally words are your only lifeline but you know what has confinement to that space right into that small tight space even though you're in 10,000 additional 10,000 square feet now like what has that taught you about space and the mind you know like how did you find freedom in a space where you had no physical freedom um, that's a really, you know, that's a fascinating question because I don't, I don't know, I don't know if that's how it plays out. I don't know if um, if people are actually finding 
like freedom. You know, I, I think um, something is going on, but I don't know if you're finding freedom. I think you're finding ways to, to push. You know, I think you're finding ways to, um, to dream a possibility, maybe. But it seems, it seems, um, somebody asked me that once. I was in this prison. I was in a prison in, um, in Trinidad. And it's, it was wild because I had a hard time finding a prison um, because it was, it was in a city. And, and it was like, and it was like right there, but it was basically looked like a storefront. You know, I remember mm-hmm. when you opened the doors, then you walked into what was the prison compound, but it was like right across the street from like a Macy's basically, right? And um, and it didn't announce itself as a prison on the outside either, it was like indescript or whatever. It had a lock on it to say Yale, like one of those small Yale locks that you use at the gym. And it was like, it blew my mind. I tried to take a picture of it, but um, they told me to put my phone away. And um, and I, I went in there and I gave this talk and this guy asked me at the end, he was like, did you ever feel free when you were inside? And that is such a hard question. Um, you know, those confined spaces, how do you find freedom? And it's really a hard question to answer after the fact. Um, my only evidence that I did is because I kept going. You know, as hard as it was to be in prison, I think, um, and I keep running into people who kept going, who kept, you know, finding finding ways to um, to find value. You know, so, so I don't know. I think that's a... Um, I got to think about that, and I got to think about, did I ever feel free? I mean, I, I want to say yes, but I feel like um, the part of me that, that isn't saying yes, um, if, if I'm not, the part of me that's not saying yes is because um, it's because you just want to remember how hard it is for other people, you know, and maybe it's not freedom, but um, but I, I think I did, though. Yeah, I mean... I yeah, I, I, I'd say so. I mean, I think, you know, as you speak, and I think kind of for me, even what undergirds this question is, you know, you were, you know, in incarcerated, but many of us find ourselves in environments that are, you know, less than ideal, um, that feel like a prison, right? That feel like there is no way out of this. And so what is that, what is that mental space? Like how do we create more space, even if it's in our mind, uh, to, to give us hope, right? To give us uh, a way to project into a future, to imagine, you know, a different possibility for ourselves outside of what we physically are surrounded by. Yeah, yeah. And 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 then the thing about like when somebody says, what is a freedom library? It is that space of possibility that is a, is a real physical intervention in the hostility in the place of a prison. You know, it's something that's clean in a place of 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 where a lot of stuff is it's just not. You know what I mean? It's just like filthy in there. So so no, I agree. <laughs> So quick pivot. So you are also a licensed attorney. Um, how how has your experience uh, what what is what has your experience meant for the way that you approach or think about justice and the law? Um, I don't know. I mean, I mean, honestly, like when you've been inside, I think people in prison think about ideas like incarceration and abolition profoundly differently sometimes from people on the outside. They think about harm and violence, and we don't have enough of these kinds of conversations. And I think we don't include people who have been inside enough. 
Um, and my experiences with every side of the system has just taught me how difficult it is. You know, like I, I had a, like like everybody's had their car broken into. You know, you had these moments where um, you, you've been turned into a victim. You had somebody, a friend of yours, home has been burglarized. I had friends who had guns pointed in their faces. And so I think um, one of the things I recognize is it's really, really complicated. And I think the work that I do has put me in a position to try to, to try to articulate that complexity publicly and privately. And it is, it's hard, man, because, you know, um, a lot of people live at that intersection of, um, of freedom is, um, is freedom from worry or concern. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I don't know. I don't know if that's where we want to live or if that's where we should live or if that's where we find the most joy. And what prompted you to want to go to law school? Um, I couldn't get a job. <laughs> I think I, I think I couldn't get a job because um, oh, oh that's not true. Actually, that's not true. I, I think one of the things I've learned about myself is that um, I wanted a certain job. I wanted to be somebody, and my criminal conviction wasn't going to allow me to get a job that allowed me to be somebody. And I've been trying to, you know, I've been trying to teach law. I've been trying to do different things, but it just wasn't. It just wasn't allowing me to do it. And I, and I was like, if I'm going to be unemployed, you know, who do I want to be unemployed as? Do I want to be an unemployed lawyer? <laughs> or do I want to be an unemployed poet? And really, I was asking myself, what can I do with my legal knowledge? And, and I, I thought it was something. I, I thought I could do something with it. And so, um, so that's what I've been doing. I've been like, okay, if you really think you could do something with it, what is it that you could do and how do you do it? And... Um, and I've been fortunate, really, to be like able to build some kind of a, a career that that allows me to um, to both think about what it is that uh, that I I want to do with books, and with literature, and with the lives of people inside. Mm-hmm. Um, but also by doing that work, by by trying to think about how um, how poetry matters, um, by trying to think about how the life of people inside matters. Um, I was also able to think about what it means to um, to use my law license. And so I've been representing people on clemency. I, I've been able to, you know, and it's all been the same process, actually. It's all been this return. And it goes back to this first question of naming. It's, mm-hmm. it's who are you? And I think a name is you trying to capture who you are. But 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 the thing that you do is who you, who is, 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 is how you try to capture who it is that you are. And, and, and I'm trying to prove that um, I am not somebody that was broken by prison. And, and I'm trying to prove that I got a duty and responsibility to people who who might have been broken by prison and who are trying to live a life that refutes the idea that they were broken by prison, who are trying to live a life that refutes the idea that they can only be whatever landed them in those cells. Um, I think that's that's pretty much the work that, that I'm doing. I mean, you you have your hands in multiple pots, right? So law, you founded Freedom Reads, which we've spoken about, um, multiple books, like incredible work posted with the New York Times, um, poetry. Um, but then you also have recently stepped on stage. <laughs> One man show named uh, Felon. Could you talk to us about like what it meant to like now put your body in the work and just to step on stage, man. 
like and and into a new a new type of space and medium um yeah i i think um you know i think what's really fascinating about about stepping on stage is first you have to memorize something <laughs> and um and I, I hadn't really ever memorized anything in life and so that's like a just a literally can you do it you know <laughs> and then the second thing is is the idea of being a writer um the idea of being a witness, I think, is a, is a part of being about a community, being a part of a community. Um, and sometimes the idea of being a writer, people think about being a spokesperson for the, for the community. And I, I don't think that's, 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 that's what I'm getting at. And, um, but the book sometimes creates this distance between you and the writers. And, 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 and it's funny that I was like, how do I do this without a book? How do I just know everything so that, so that I actually feel like it's just somebody at the bar talking? And I'm mm-hmm. trying to I'm trying to hold your attention with the story I got to tell for how long does it take, for however long it takes. And um, and it's it's exhilarating, it's frightening. <laughs> it's this question of how what does it mean to expose a whole world to to what you have to say, you know? And um, and it's humbling too, because I remember the, I still remember the first time I read a poem out loud. I was terrified. <laughs> um, and I was ignorant. I didn't even understand that it made sense to practice, you know, like to, to really practice, to be like. The one reason why I would say that, you know, what real freedom is, is to be like, um, I got a poem that says, um, the first thing is like, um, some things get remembered different. And then if you really fuck with Sonia Sanchez and you heard her, you'd be hearing her, if, if that was her line, she'd be like, some things get remembered different. Some things get remembered different. You know, and it's, a, and it's like a kind, of, a kind of real freedom in imagining the song that you have to sing to be so expansive that you will chant it. You know, that, that, that like your body will make a joyful sound. This shit feels really, <laughs> really like being a Southern Baptist in a way. But, but what I mean by that is that, um, is that being on stage is asking yourself if you have permission to be free. If mm. what you name is freedom, um, being permission to make your body move in a way that you believe gives you joy um, without having to be sanctioned by the other people in the room. And when you do a solo show, you know, you're doing this thing and the way mine is, this is a certain level of spontaneity in every, in every, every, every occasion. So I gotta, man, I gotta be willing to be vulnerable and to be like, yo, like I'll say some shit that's hilarious. I'll be like, I'll be like, um, I got this line. I'm like, um, uh, you know, I was in one of these old school prisons, right? And and if and, and it was one of these old school prisons that would sell you, you know, oodles and noodles and, and instant coffee, but they didn't have a microwave or hot water heater. So if you wanted to hook you up a cup of Joe, you had to, you had to MacGyver you a stove out of toilet paper. Yeah, you know MacGyver. MacGyver was this black dude who, who would be in all of these wild situations and could invent an escape out of anything. You lock him in a room with, with, with like some tweezers and a battery and he will build a, a spaceship, you know? And then, uh, but I say MacGyver, and, 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 and I was like, MacGyver's this black dude. And sometimes I just hit it like that, yo, MacGyver's this black dude. And like 12% of the audience laughs because they think it's hilarious. And then like 40% of the audience has no idea who MacGyver is. It's like, how do you create those moments of permission uh, with the audience? You know, how do you create those moments of, and, and you're, you're telling a story, but you're trying to make it feel like you're telling the story to one person who, who you know, they're going to dig the MacGyver joke because they, they know that you and him used to watch MacGyver. Or like me and my mom used to watch MacGyver, so she's going to dig the MacGyver joke. It's like, how do you create different moments like that, that it fits whatever audience you're in? And then, you know, the MacGyver joke is for your mama, but your mama ain't in Texas. So how do you deliver that part of, this, of the show? And keep going when nobody laughs. You know, it's this whole, it's this whole dance. It's, it's a, 
it's lovely, man. It's lovely for, for me to be able to say that I'm doing this and it was never part of the plan. Um, it kind of feels pretty, pretty interesting. Pretty, feels but, pretty but, good. but, you know, t- tell us that MacGyver story. <laughs> tell us about the stove. Oh, oh, I didn't even say so okay, what you do is you would take a uh, you would take a roll of toilet paper and you would wrap it around your hand, you know, um, I don't know, five, six, seven times. You just wrap it. I mean, no, not five, six, ten times, twelve times. You would wrap it around your hand and then you would cuff the bottom and then you would sit it on on the on a toilet on some surface. And when you light the bottom, the flame would shoot out the center. And it'd be all flames and no smoke. And it's it's really something scientific behind it. I don't know. I should ask a scientist who would explain to me because because if you just like if you just like did it with um, with like newspaper, it's not going to work. The whole newspaper's going to explode. But this, the flame literally shoots up the center. And you take a soda can that you had cleaned out, and you attach a string to the to the tab, and you fill the soda can with water. And when you light the stove, you hold the soda can over the flame. And once the flame goes out, you got you some boiling water. And um, it's fascinating. I mean, it's like, you know, because they got water. How you gonna make coffee? How you gonna make coffee? You know, how you gonna make a soup? You know, people figured it out, you know. And that's not the only way people figured it out, but that's the ingenious way that, and also, so the show, I mean, and even in that, that, that moment, that's about, that's about, you know, human ingenuity. It's about the genius of it. And when I say black um, MacGyver, you know, it's funny, but it's also complex in a way, right? Because you recognize that genius as being MacGyver, but I'm like throwing some little shade in there. Like, I'm like, not a black MacGyver. Um, acknowledging that like this expertise doesn't exist as a as a moniker of, of race, right? Even though some of our heroes, I, I, you know, I mean, I guess we don't have a lot of cultural heroes. We do. We have a lot of cultural heroes in the United States, like Lincoln, Malcolm X, um, and we have inventors too, actually. So so maybe it is a, a true rift to try to push back at that and expand and expand our ideas of of, of where genius can be found. Because to, to make a, a stove a stove out of toilet paper. I mean, that's some genius level shit right there. You know what I mean? So it's like trying to, um, even in that little moment, and I got a lot of little gestures like that, where the gestures are meant to amount to something that's more than just a moment. Yeah, when I heard that, that shit blew my mind. I was (laughs) watching it. Thank you again for sending me the link. I was watching that and I was like, wait, I didn't know where you were going. And when you told me that, I'm like, wait, y'all have figured out a way to like roll up toilet paper, light it, and <laughs> use it to make hot water just so you could get a cup of coffee. Like this shit was wild to me. But you know, you mentioned about this, you know, you mentioned this idea of like, you know, the inventors, the Pete Rose that we have. And um, when we spoke earlier, you told me about a book that you're working on, um, or maybe it was a friend, maybe you're producing it. Um, you can tell me a bit more called uh, Crazy as Hell, the best book on black history you'll ever read. And you have chapters that are named after a figure in Black history. Could you tell me a little bit about this book and why why you're so excited about it? Um, it's interesting. It's interesting because, um, you know, it's funny. It's just like, why are you excited about this book? I mean, one, it's because I, I really do like a, a good book. I mean, I think that's, that's the main reason. But the other reason is because I think... Um, I think it's hilarious, man. I think we deserve funny books, um, and I think that, that I think that Black folks deserve books that engage with our culture in an expansive way, you know. And um, and, and it almost serves as a, a, a like like now I'm coming up through these spaces where 
you know how it is. You got to know some Shakespeare. You got to know some Dickens. But but when people don't know who, who Chester Himes is, they don't feel ashamed when they walk in a room and they don't know that. Or, or if they don't know who Gabriel Marquez is and they haven't read 100 Years of Solitude, or they've only heard of 100 Years of Solitude but not the rest. Or, um, or if they heard of the Scarlet Letter but they've never heard of Charles Johnson's um, Middle Passage. You know, part of this work is about how do you expand out that 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 frame of consciousness and that 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 frame of reference. And so I think that's part of what that's about is, is expanding that. Yeah, you you don't happen to have it with you, do you? Have what? The book. Yeah, yeah, the book. Yeah, the f- I, I can read some of it too. The fact yeah. that I think about the book though is because think about it though, because like when I say expanding out the frame of consciousness and the frame of reference is, is you got these things that like black folks just know about, you know, um, and, and not all the time though. Actually, so you got the things that black folks just know about, and you got the thing that black folks be pretending that they know about that they should know about, and this is all of it is in a book, and I feel like it's this thing that's like, um, like if you want to survive a cookout. Cause, Cause, at the cookout, this is the thing. The cookout, they got everybody there, right? So you got the dude that just came home, and so I'm gonna, t- I'm gonna read the table of contents, right? I'm gonna read some of it. How to read this book, and then you got the forward, then you got the runaway, and within the runaway, you got Harriet Tubman, Frederick Douglass, known quantities, known, known people. We know them, right? Margaret Garner. Mm, who is that? Now you nice. Now if you tell me what book tells the story, what book the, the starting off point of the book is is Margaret Garner's story then you, you really know the black imagination. But ain't no critique if you don't. But if you got this book, you would. And, and, um, and so, yeah, so it's, it's, it's dope. Could and, you... Um, and, oh, sorry. Yeah, go ahead, can I do what? What you want me to do? Yo, you, when we spoke before, uh, Eldridge Cleaver. Oh, yeah, so I'll read you some more. So let me tell you a few more, then I'll read you one. So, All right. Henry, so Margaret Garner, Henry Box Brown, Gladys Bentley, but dead be dads. Then more on the runaway, and you got people that you would know, you know, Nat Turner, Denmark Vesey, but Father Moses Dixon is somebody that most folks don't know. Gabriel Prosser, kind of should know, but he did some wow shit. <laughs> Prosser was the dude I read to you about, too. Um, um, Cleve, I read to you about Prosser and, 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 and um, Cleveland. Um, Robert Williams, the mythic Negro. So these are sort of hilarious, and it's, and it's interesting, though, because it's both hilarious, but it's game, and it's complex. So this one, Eldridge Cleveland. Out of all the people in this book, Eldridge Cleaver lets you know that no matter how crazy you are, you too can be a part of black history. <laughs> Though we include Cleaver here on the inmate section, he could be a, a serial rapist category. In that case, he would have only one companion in the book, the notorious craziest hell Bill Cosby. But Cosby never admits to raping anyone. He expects us to believe that 60 women all made up those allegations. Now imagine being a convicted rapist who, in his best-selling book, admits to practicing rape on black women to prepare to assault white women, and having the New York Times rate your book as one of the 10 most notable books of the year. Eldridge Cleaver was a serial rapist, convicted felon, and member of the Black Panther Party. Later in his life, he became a Republican and a Mormon. We suggest you look him up. When they get you to do it, we'll add this one last fact. But you got to get the book to get the last fact. <laughs> <laughs> all right, all right. I love a good. I love a good cliffhanger. Thank you, brother. Like I, I wanted you to read that because I feel like, you know, and and we had this conversation before. Um, you know, it's it's not like a who's who list of Black history, right? Like it's not your third grade lesson in Black history, right? It's also a space of I think you know honesty and also like critique, and I I. 
really love the idea of us having more spaces of not only like remembrance, reverence, honoring, but also like critique, right? Like critique is how we move forward. It's a way of like remembering. It's a way of analyzing a situation. And I feel um, in many, many times, you know, in, in Black America, like we, we don't have really great honest spaces of critique. Um, and many times it's because, you know, other people are listening, right? Like Folks are holding on and excusing R. Kelly for years, for years, for years, for years, right? How how long of a run did we give Kanye? Yeah, but go. I mean, the the, the interesting thing about um about about R. Kelly, I actually think though, right, is 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 honestly like um those those permissions and those excuses like date back. We just read a poem today. It was a poem. I'm going to find, I'm going to read it to you because it's, it's about, it's called An Ordinary Misfortune. Uh, each week we got, we got um, interns from, from um, two students who are working with us this summer. And, and one of them, they, they bring poems out and each week we sort of discuss the poems. And so this week we were looking at Emily Jugman Yoon and it's this poem called An Ordinary Misfortune. It goes, she is girl. She is gravel. She is grabbed. She is grabbed like handfuls of gravel. Gravel graded by water. Her village is full of gravel fields. It is 1950. She is girl. She is grabbed. She is not my grandmother, though my grandmother is girl. My grandmother's father closes the gates against American soldiers, though they jump over stone walls. To a girl who is not my grandmother, the the girl is gravel, grabbed. Her language is gravel because it means nothing. Hands full of girl, fields full of gravel. Korea is gravel and graves. Girl is girl, and she will never be a grandmother. She will be girl. Girl is gravel, and history will skip her like stone over water. Oh, girl, oh, glory, girl. And I, I think about art, and I think about Cleaver, and I think about, like, what any of this should demand of us, right? And and I think what happens is it's not that um, he lived in a time period where we imagined that these were permissive, permissible. I think that he just lived in a time period where, where we didn't have an art that was making us, like, look in the mirror. So when we say like how long was was R. Kelly able to do this, it's because um, the art wasn't demanded. I mean, and they weren't even living and existing in a realm of art that demanded that they ask those questions. We we won't we can't even really honestly say that like R and B artists in the '90s were ignoring these things that are like crucial because they weren't talking about it. Because what's weird, right, is that you can have Brenda's got a baby, but Brenda's barely got a brain. A damn shame the girl can hardly spell her name. And I won't even go through the list of like prominent R and B artists in the 90s that had domestic violence cases. You know, and so what happened was, was it was almost as if like, there was some pockets of rap where even kind of language within the songs were permissible to interrogate the spaces that we were living in that, that actually, I don't know if it was actually existed in, in the genre that R, that R. Kelly was dominating. I, I think that the excuse is not us turning, a, uh, it's not us failing to acknowledge and, and take into account and hold R. Kelly or hold ourselves accountable for what was happening. I think the real failure was like not recognizing what it means to have a genre that doesn't that doesn't push the most difficult and challenging conversations that actually have something to do with our safety in our communities. You know, mm. if we really wanted to get at what was wrong, it'd be like, yo, how come we don't have three or four songs about what's in that poem? And that's why poetry is urgent, right? And that's why literature is urgent, because no matter what, the writers are never going to ignore the most horrific things. You're not gonna. You're not gonna ever be able to run down the most five, ten prominent writers in Black America and not having somebody talk about whatever you think is the most significant problem of the day. 
but but you can have that with you know with some with some with some genres and maybe having that is what failed. Although we just don't listen to women probably also because I bet um, an argument can easily be made that you know if I go back and listen closely to Mariah Carey, if I go back and listen closely to Truth Hurts, if I go back and listen closely to In Vogue, if I go back and listen closely to Escape, actually you'll find that everything I just said is bullshit. And the reality is that we just weren't paying attention because sometimes we don't keep the most vulnerable people in our community safe. Um, I, I still think though it's something to be said about the responsibility of like, you know, me as a poet to write in a different way about black women and women more broadly, um, to write in a different way that forces me to learn something and forces me to exhibit a kind of curiosity in a work because I'm having to exhibit that curiosity um, in my own life to discover where the work is going to lead me to. Mm. Yeah, brother, absolutely. Like you, yeah, you just you just said uh, a, a mouthful. Um, you know, I'm I'm thinking also. I mean, actually, even in your um, play Felon, I believe you even open with the line that there's no song that exists for what you experience once you leave prison, something like that. I'm kind of paraphrasing. Yeah, name a song that tells a man what to expect after prison. Name a song that tells a man what to expect after prison. Is this Occam's razor? Am I still a suspect after prison? Absolutely. And you have another line in there that I found really interesting. Um, you're telling a story, not to, not to give it away, y'all. Y'all gonna have to go see it. Um, but you tell a story um, about having a conversation with someone um, in prison. And um, he says to you, where I'm from, the name father is the same word for listen. Yeah, the blunts we passed around let us abandon our tongues. Not that much though. But what if the liquor ain't lie? And if you have no father, you can't see straight. Years later, mine said to me, son, why your firstborn ain't got our name? As if he ain't know. Some things turn your life into a prayer. The gods will certainly answer. What does what does what does that mean? How do you how do you interpret father father as a as a synonym for listen? Oh, that don't, I mean you know I don't know what that should mean. <laughs> no, I mean, it just sounds good. I'm so mad. I'm so mad. I'm so mad. I was like, bro, I was, uh, I was up last night. I'm like, I'm like, you know, I'm like, father, listen, like, here, like, it's some old nigga shit though, right? Because you, you can see this, right? You can see them old dudes like, see, this, y'all young niggas don't get it, man. Y'all motherfuckers don't listen. See, where I'm from, the word father is the same as the word for listen, but y'all niggas don't know that because y'all ain't got no fathers. You know what I mean? I I can literally hear somebody saying that. And then and then the, the next trip is like, if you have no father, you can't see straight. But what does it mean to see straight? It's like it's like when the old head tell you, you don't even see what the fuck you're doing. And so it's actually a, 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 a like like somebody would tell you some shit like this, boy, you just don't listen. You don't see what the fuck you're doing. And it's like, because you can't hear, you can't see. It's like this, this connection, because you ain't listening to me. You can't see what you're doing in the world. And so 
I was trying to capture like all of this black folk wisdom and, 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 and actually also push against it though, because it's this um because it's this also like tension in it too, right? Within the show. So the tension, the poem can't do everything, but it's a tension within my life and it's a tension within this poem. And it's like, yo, wait a minute. What do you mean? If you have no father, you can't see straight. Nigga, you mm. got a mama? You mm. know what I mean? Like, what do you mean you can't? You got a whole community around you. You got that drunken motherfucker to school. This, this is the thing, like even in that scene, you got somebody just trying to mentor some kids who need education. You know, and you got some kids that's listening. Like, like, like you could think what you want about the scene, but what you do have happening is one man who sees some young folks who might need a talking to and tries to give them some game. And the game sounds ridiculous to the young men because that's how it's supposed to sound. But even a young man said, but what if the liquor ain't lie? The young, the, 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 the speaker recognizes that, that, that what causes the world to characterize this man before him as somebody who is not the embodiment of wisdom is not who he is. It is the liquor. So it's like, what if the liquor ain't lie? And mm. actually, if you have no father, you can't see straight. And scene. Years later, my father asked me why I ain't give my firstborn his name. As if he ain't know. Some things turn your life into a prayer. The gods will certainly answer. And what is those things that turn your life into a prayer? That imagination, that uh, imagining that a name in itself is everything, you know? And so, and so like, 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 you know, um, my dad ain't no, you don't become a father cause, cause of the name you give somebody. Um, or not my dad, cause that's not really fair. The poem is not about my dad. Um, but, but the poem is, it, it, it takes, and, and most, a lot of the poems is, is, is like, you know, it's pure invention. You know what I mean? It's like, this is a place. Somebody said to me today, they said, do you have to lie to be a poet? Because I said something that wasn't true. Um, but, it, but, it was, but I was joking. You know what I mean? It was like, obviously not true. I was like, that's just hyperbole. But do you have to lie to be a poet? Yeah, you have to believe that the stories you invent are meaningful and powerful enough that, that you could humble your own life to them. So when I got a poem, and, and which in that poem, I'm doing something that I would never do in life, it's because I'm trying to humble myself to that first person speaker and allow that first person speaker to live in the world in, in a way that's necessary. Even if that might have you saying something to me in this interview, like, yo, so I read in your poem that you sold drugs. I'm like, I never said I sold drugs in poem. You'd be like, let's go to the poem. When you read that line, it's like, I once sold crack to pregnant women. And you're like, well, you said I, I mean, I don't understand how you want me to read that, Dwayne. You've been to prison. This poem is about somebody that's been in prison. You said, I once sold crack to prison with pregnant women. Why do you not want me to take that as being about you? Since I know that you came up and you called your book bastards at Reagan era. That's all crack cocaine. I've heard you say that you familiar with me. You never said you sold drugs outside of this one moment in this poem where you said you sold it to pregnant women. But, you know, and I'm like, well, no, it's not about me, though. I can't be the most important thing in a poem. The poem is about me grappling with things that friends of mine have told me about that they struggle with, that I know they struggle with because I live in the world, because I watch the news, because I read books. And, and it's draped in the, in, the, in the pronoun I, because we need to live in a world where we are willing to be flawed. And so mm. if my need, if my belief that our community needs that conversation means that you will think less of me because I've said that I did something in print that you don't respect, that's okay. I can live with that. 
because my art is not about, it's not a fucking dating ad, you know? It's not meant to make you love me. I mean, this is why I still fuck with R. Kelly's music. You know what I mean? Like, like R. Kelly's music is not a dating ad. His music is not meant to make me love him. Like, I've never listened to R. Kelly thinking, man, I would love to have a drink with this guy. You know what I mean? Like, 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 like what the fuck? I mean, I mean in, in, in 1996, I, I was listening to Tupac. In 95, I was listening to Tupac. I, I knew that Tupac was like, complicated, you know what I mean? I was torn by the rape trial. I was like, what am I supposed to think? Like, I never thought about these folks as being like, like my actual role models. I, I'm, I'm just mad because they aren't making, like what I love Park for is that he was talking about juveniles going to prison in the 90s, before I went to prison. We, we don't have rappers now talking about that. He was writing about the, 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 the conflicts in the community between different groups. He was writing about um, Latasha. Was it Natasha or Latasha? Um, I can't remember her name, but Tupac did. The, the black girl that got shot over the, the, the bottle of orange juice in the carryout. But Tupac was writing about her back in the day. And, I, and I'm, again, I'm not saying he's a saint. I'm saying that one of the things I grapple with when I'm doing his art is, and when I'm thinking about what it means to tell the lie or tell the truth or what do you present to the world, it's like, is it about art or is it about me? And maybe mm. that's the only thing I do in my life that I, I could honestly be like, it's about art, it's not about me. Um, at least poetry. Sometimes a memoir is so deeply about me that that I am making active choices not to tell stories because I do want you to love me. But when I when I become a poet, when I'm in my when I got my poet um brain on, I'm just at it, you know, and I'm trying to tell you the truth. Um, no matter what. You know, um, Speaking of things that you know are, are, are speaking of things that are kind of moral, you know, undulate along moral lines, truth, fiction, um, and even this idea of um, you know, father is the same word for listen, which in a way for me kind of struck me like a koan, like what is the sound of one hand clapping? I was like, I just don't know the answer to this, but I'm just gonna wrestle with this. <laughs> <laughs> like I didn't need a conclusion, but it's, it it got me thinking. But you know, kind of looking back and maybe even sitting in the present, um, what are some of the biggest lessons that your mother Gloria, you know, and your father taught you? <laughs> That's funny. Uh, I my mom told me a lot of lessons. My dad did. I mean, I grew up with my dad, so so listeners know. I mean, I, I mean, I, and it I, could also be in his absence, right? Like things that you learned. No, I got with a real nothing. lesson that he told me. I, I tell you something real. I mean, and actually working on the show when the show was also about. So the solo show is really about my life. So that one is, is really it's just truly about me. I mean, and the poems are opportunities for me to expand it out, and it's about other people as well, and not just me anyway. But, but like the solo show, it, it has come to be shaped in a way that I'm trying to be really true to something, particularly to like the people that's in the show as characters that I love. And um, and my father is one of them. And so it's a bit of a challenge in that one because I think it's not as teased out as it needs to be. Um, but the one lesson that he taught me, I, I he once told me that, you know, like you don't want to be um, the 50 year old man without, without, without the people you love around you, without your children and, 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 and and the person you chose to commit your life with. And I think that that was like a really powerful lesson about what it means to stay with somebody. Um, and, and, and so that was one thing I thought was powerful that he, that he said to me that I won't really forget. He once used the word um, discursive in a sentence. And, and that just became a reminder though that intelligence, it, it, it could wear 
um, could, could show up in all kinds of different ways. Um, my mom wrote the first poem that I ever read, and it was about life, and it was trying to define life, and it was about peace and joy, and I, I remember that. Um, and I think also it has some way of me connecting. Uh, you know, I'm a poet that thinks a lot about imagery, and because that particular poem um, was at the beginning of a photo album, it was this green photo album, one of those old school joints with a, a bunch of Polaroid. You know, I, I remember that distinctly, almost as if, you know, um, the urge to become a poet in some ways came both from the black poets and from my mom. Um, and I think about why I published now with the Reginald Dwayne Betts is partly because I think my dad could have did a lot of the things that he didn't do. You know, he went to OU mm. for a scholarship and left after a semester and never graduated. I mean, and he's a dude that uses the word discursive. You know, who you know without a college degree that says discursive? <laughs> and then, um, and then my mom. You know, what I mean, she has this lovely poem that I carry with me for my whole life. And I think that as a poet, um, that that's just a, a way in which I imagine I'm doing things that my folks would have done in the world. But lesson for my mom. I mean, I, I think that um, my mom is unfailingly generous and kind, and I think I learned that from her. Um, she's super conflict avoiding, and I think I've learned that from her. And people might say that that could be a bad thing, but but I think I think not liking conflict is usually about not liking conflict with the people that you love. You know, like people never really say they conflict avoiding with people that they are at war with or people that they're enemies. They say that they conflict avoiding with people that they care about, which I think uh, might not always be the best way to be and might not always lead to the best outcomes. But but it does mean that you care about how you make the people who you care about feel, and that sometimes you'll suffer because you care more about how they feel than yourself and. And I learned that from my mom. I mean, I think you got to be really generous in this world when you hurt people. My mom hasn't hurt anybody. I've hurt people, but um, I learned that generosity from her, and I got my love of books from her. And we got to do this again, man, but I got to jump because I got to I know, I know. I'm looking at the time right now. Well, first of all, really quickly, we have two minutes. Dwayne. First of all, brother, thank you. I want to take this moment to acknowledge this incredible work. And of course, we have to do this again. But, you know, in thinking about this incredible, vast uh, way in which you're moving through the world, this like multivalent bravura way of being yourself, um, I think in many ways show is evidence, right? Is, is evidence that actually, even though you did serve time, right? It started It started back when you were younger. Um, and so I just want to thank you for the ways in which you have transmuted, right, this experience into this incredible world that you're building um, around you and across the world. Um, so my last question is, if you had everything at your behest, what is the world you imagine for the future? In 50 seconds. Um. Honestly, man, when we hurt somebody, we should have an answer to what we owe. And it is the responsibility of us as a community um, to think of that answer. And it's not the responsibility of people who have been um, hurt to come up with an answer. And, and I'm looking forward to having a, a future where, where we really take, take seriously what it means to be accountable and, and, and admit that it's for those of us who are accountable to figure out what that means and stop asking people who we've hurt what, what we owe them. Like that's that's our job to figure out, and and as a nation, we do that all the time. We should never, we shouldn't even be talking about reparations. We should never talk about reparations when we put um, Japanese Americans in internment camps. We shouldn't be talking about what what is owed to them um, when we have have basically, you know, nearly exterminated an entire nation of Native Americans. Um, like like they shouldn't have to tell us what we owe, you know. And and I think that we live in a, in in a, in a world right now. We live in an America right now. We think about the criminal justice system in a way in which 
we as, as, as human beings who hurt people, we should be responsible for saying what accountability is. But all we do is we use it to just put more pressure, I think, on, um, on victims. And I've done it, actually. I've done it. And I'm speaking about what, what I've done. And, um, and I find myself troubled by the way that I've partaken in and not doing the serious thinking. It's a, it's a, it's a book called The Rose, and I'll end with this. The, it's two sisters, and they live on adjacent plots of land. And one of the husbands um, is hunting and kills his nephew. He shoots at a deer, and the nephew is in a tree, and, and, and the husband, the man, didn't see the nephew, and the nephew falls, and he, and he, and, and he dies. And then um, he has to carry, they got to carry the dead boy to, to their in-law's house, and, and, and the mother has to carry her nephew to her sister. And uh, like later on that night, they, they go back to the house, and they got their son, Rose, who's the same age as the, as the dead boy. And they say, you know, it was an accident, um, but your son's not here, and so now, now our son is your boy. And, um, and the book is so, you know, heartbreaking and challenging and difficult and messy. Um, but it has somebody at the beginning saying, this is what accountability means. And these are clearly people who love each other. And it is hard. It's hard for the kids to accept that this is why, why we're doing that. It's other siblings involved. And I don't, know, I, don't, I don't know if we're asking those kind of questions. And I think if we did, we would, we would be in a different place. So... Well, brother, I know you have to run. I appreciate this conversation so much. Have a wonderful, wonderful day. And man, all love, all admiration for the way you're moving through the world. Thanks, man. Peace. All right, we'll do this again. Peace. Thank you all for joining us on this inspiring episode with Reginald Dwayne Betts. We hope you continue to explore the boundless world of literature and its ability to unlock new horizons within us all. Let us know your thoughts over on Instagram and Twitter at Black Imagination. We love your comments. Also, if you have the time, leave us a review over on Apple Podcasts and be sure to check out this conversation and others at blackimagination.com and the Institute of Black Imagination on YouTube. As we reflect on Dwayne's words and experiences, we're reminded how your unique circumstances also make you uniquely qualified for your life's calling. Wherever you are is the best place to start. Stay curious and keep dreaming.